my mom was Italian, Sicilian-American more specifically, and my dad was Ashkenazi Jewish, so we call ourselves pizza bagels. You know, Italians and Jews, especially growing up in New York, have so much in common in terms of food and family and guilt and religion and tradition and food, right? Like, it plays a very integral part in both of those cultures. I'm Beth Schenker, and this is The Big Schmear. Joining me today is my guest, Shannon Sarna, founding editor of The Nosher and a contributing writer to Kefeller.com. Hi, Shannon. It's really great to connect with you, and I want to welcome you to The Big Schmear. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to thank you for being my first guest in 2019. So we're off to an exciting start. One of the main things I want to talk to you about in this episode is about this mostly recent article that you wrote that was conveniently titled, The Jewish Food Trends You'll Be Seeing in 2019. But before we get started talking about that, I want listeners to know a little bit about you and have a sense of why you even wrote this article, what, why you came up with this idea. And so I'm going to give a little background about who you are. Shannon is the editor of the Jewish food blog, The Nosher, which, by the way, is an amazing food blog. She's also author of the cookbook Modern Jewish Baker. She's a latte addict. We won't hold that against her. She's sometimes referred to as the Queen of Hala, and I'm going to ask her about that as well. She's a multitasking mom of two very little cute girls, and she's about to be a part of a new podcast about being a mom, uh, which is called Call Your Mother. This is an amazingly impressive list, clearly somebody who's really busy. And so um, I'm excited that you had the opportunity and were able to take some time to talk with me. This is amazing. Thank you. That's very kind. (laughs) I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your growing up in relation to food. And, And I'm wondering, did it play a special role in your home Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So my mom was Italian, Sicilian-American more specifically, and my dad was Ashkenazi Jewish. So we call ourselves pizza bagels. And I think, (laughs) you know, Italians and Jews, especially growing up in New York, have so much in common in terms of food and family and guilt and religion and tradition and food, right? Like food plays a very, yes, Um, (laughs) yes. It plays a very integral part in both of those cultures. And to add insult to injury, my grandfather, my father's father, whose name was Edward, Grandpa Eddie, who my older daughter is named for, he was a food chemist for General Foods. He actually helped invent things like tang and the process for freeze-drying coffee, which just in short means he was totally obsessed with food. And as a result, my family was a little bit food-obsessed. So talking about food was a quite annoying part of our childhood that you don't really understand until you later look back and reflect on it. So if we went on a trip, my grandfather's first question was always like, well, what did you eat? And, you know, we were kids. like, I don't know. We had, like, French fries, Grandpa. (laughs) Also, interestingly, my Jewish grandmother, who is still alive, God bless her, she's amazing, 94, 
she is uh, a terrible cook, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> but she doesn't know it, so sh- don't anybody tell her. Um, <laughs> so I didn't grow up with that strong, like, bubby tradition of, like, you know, can't wait to eat my grandmother's kugel. For me, Jewish food was this very sad, sort of, like, wilted, dried-out, leathery, burnt-on-top mush of brown foods that— I ate at holidays begrudgingly. I pushed away the kefilte fish that came out of a jar. The chicken soup was oily. The kugel was burnt on top, and I didn't enjoy it. On the other hand, my mother, who was Italian, she made you know Italian foods from scratch that she taught me how to make, eggplant parm and tortellini alfredo and meatballs and all other kinds of things that were fried and covered in sauce. So there was a, it's a little hard to compete with, you know, eggplant parm or tortellini alfredo versus dried out brisket that's been cooked six times over. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, uh, but we did. We went to Jewish delis. My father loves Jewish food. So we grew up with Jewish food and a lot of Yiddish and certainly a love and respect for um, our Jewish heritage and uh, also a deep connection to Italian food. Um, and it was only later when my mother passed away and my grandfather passed away um, all in a, in a short span of time that we started actually spending holidays with a different part of my family. My grandma's best friend, Claire, and her son, David Simpkins, who are amazing cooks. And I started to understand, actually, Jewish food is really delicious. It was just my <laughs> grandma who couldn't cook. And um, I started to develop an appreciation for for Jewish food, but food was very pervasive in our family, and I spent a lot of time cooking and baking with my mom, um, which, of course, are very fond memories for me. Oh, yeah. Wow. What a—I mean, there, that's just—it um, sounds like it was a gift in many ways that food was really the center of much of the activities and thinking of your family. That's that's pretty cool. And, and in different ways, too, not just Jewish food— but the food chemistry part, I think that that's pretty cool. And I don't know, sounds really great. And sounds like you had lots of great food to eat growing up, um, <laughs> on, at least on yeah. the Italian side anyway. <laughs> we also have a very beloved aunt who's, who's originally from Colombia. So we grew up with a lot of those foods as well. So we're very blessed to have uh, experienced d- diverse culinary traditions from an early age. Wow. So... I could jump to asking you about being a food blogger, and I'm not, but I'm wondering, was there, was there anything food, Jewish food related in between that time of, you know, just young, um, young girl growing up and having food be this, take a central role in your life in various ways, and then becoming um, this food blogger? What, was that part of a bigger plan? Did you just happen upon that? I I definitely happened upon it. I think a lot of people can look back on their lives and say like, oh, these pieces really add up and make sense now. I studied Middle Eastern politics and languages at uh, Smith College. I thought I was going to go into politics. Um, and that was only after I spent 10 years of my life training very intensively in musical theater and then leaving that to, to change courses a little bit. So um, neither one of those was preparing me for to become a food writer and cookbook author. But um, it was through my work in the nonprofit field when I was working for Edgar Bronfman that I started to explore telling stories through social media specifically. 
And I started keeping a food blog on the side as a writing project, primarily. I had been really, like, focused on baking challah for many years previous to that. It had become an exercise that I started doing shortly after my mom passed away for a multitude of reasons, but I just really became intent on making great challah. And so in the years leading up to me getting married and then afterwards, I was experimenting a lot both with challah and other things. And so when the opportunity presented itself for me to start really focusing on writing and social media, the first thing I did was start a blog to be to have another avenue for writing. And then a year into keeping a personal food blog, I was approached by myjewishlearning.com to uh, launch a blog with them, which was The Nosher, and that was just uh, over seven years ago. Um, and then The Nosher has you know, morphed uh, many times since then. Right. It's a great blog. Wow, seven years. That's, I've forgotten that it's been And out we would there call it a, a, a site. It's a website it's, it's a, <laughs> now. It right. started as a blog, but it's really its own entity, yeah. And do you want to give that website so people can check it out? Please, if you're not already following us, please go to www.thenosher.com or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram and Twitter at Jewish Food. Pretty easy. Perfect. So here you are working on this food blog, and I know you've had other projects, which we'll, we'll get to in a, in a bit. But what caught my attention was the article that you wrote. It was at the end of last year. And it was all about Jewish food trends for 2019. And there were a couple of things that struck me about the article. One was, wow, what a great way to start out 2019 on my podcast. So that was kind of a selfish thing. But the other thing was, it was kind of interesting, the topics or the areas of your focus in that article. And so maybe let's talk about the things that you mention in that article, and then I can ask you some questions afterwards about that. Sure. So the first thing I think you, the first trend was about bread. So tell us what you discovered. So we have been immersed for good and for bad, well, really for bad in my view, in the gluten-free world of the last few years, which is by and large just a trend that people have hopped onto for seemingly health reasons, but mostly because it's a trend that they think is going to help them lose weight. That's not me belittling or uh, speaking pejoratively in any sense about people who genuinely have celiac disease, which is probably a much larger number in America than currently I'm diagnosed. That's via mm -hmm. Freakonomics, not my opinion. But the waning of the gluten-free movement, which I'm very thrilled about, is coinciding from the research that I read with an interest in naturally fermented breads like sourdough. The, the sudden realization that people were having upset stomachs because they were eating bread is basically ridiculous because people have been eating bread for thousands of years. But the process of naturally fermented breads has sort of been lost over the years. I'm always saying to people, of course you have an upset stomach or of course people are experiencing issues because they're eating bread that's sitting on you know, supermarket shelves mm -hmm. for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's not what we're meant to consume. So I think we're seeing the tide turning where bread is concerned because people are interested in sourdough and we're seeing how sourdough infiltrates into Jewish foods Naturally fermented breads 
like rye bread, are a strong tradition for Jews. And you can t- take sourdough and make it into pita and make it into bagels, and you can even make it into challah. So I'm very excited that bread is back as a bread baker. And I just think that it's, it is genuinely a healthier choice for people than just full force going gluten-free. Just eat real bread. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's all about the real food, isn't it, in, in almost anything? Uh, yes. yes, yes, for sure. So another area you talked about was tahini, and maybe you can give just a slight little definition for people who maybe not so familiar with tahini, and tell us why there's a trend in that area. Sure. So tahini is a paste or a condiment made from toasted sesame seeds. It has both sweet and savory applications, and it's been gaining momentum in the United States, I would say, for a few reasons. Number one, Middle Eastern food, Israeli food, is just completely exploding in America thanks to a couple of things. It's healthier. It's beautiful to look at in a way, you know, that sort of brown Ashkenazi food is delicious, but a little (laughs) less beautiful and also tends to be traditionally a little less healthy. And, you know, Israeli food is trending thanks to so many big name Israeli chefs and both large and small Israeli inspired restaurants are opening across America. So as there is more Israeli influence in our culinary landscape, the ingredients that are important in that cuisine are also gaining popularity and becoming more uh, widely available. And so we see this both in terms of what you can find in supermarket shelves and also what we see on Pinterest, what we see bloggers writing about, and also what we see restaurants featuring. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of ingredients, not just tahini, um, but also labna, harissa, which is a North African condiment made from a mixture of spices and roasted pepper, Zatar, which is a spice very common in Israel and in the Middle East. So uh, tahini particularly is incredibly versatile and it's healthy because it's sesame is, you know, a good, a good fat, a good seed. And you can make cookies with it. You can make all kinds of quick breads and pastry, but you can also, it's like the perfect accompaniment on roasted vegetables. You can make it into a salad dressing. So um, it's healthy, it's versatile, and it's, it's just, you're going to see it more and more. Wow, that's a good sales pitch. <laughs> so, if, and I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if, if somebody were to, you know, hear this and think, you know, I've been meaning to try tahini, and I'm going to go out and buy it. Can you suggest like an easy experiment that they could try, uh, either sweet or savory? Uh, some maybe some food that they generally prepare that could give this just a, you know, just like a slightly different edge to it? Sure. um, So my favorite way to have tahini is to make a very simple sort of sauce from it and then to serve it with roasted cauliflower. Um, So to make a sauce, you would take tahini, which you can buy in many supermarkets, although the quality will vary. And so if you see a lot of oil on the top of it, you know it's not particularly fresh and you should try to find a different one. But Whole Foods, Trader Joe's all sell it. And then there's a couple of other brands that you can actually buy online that are a smaller batch and maybe a little bit of a higher quality. 
you would take the tahini and you would mix it with, let's say, a squeeze of lemon from half a lemon and whisk it with some cold water until it's a sauce that you has the consistency that you can drizzle, maybe add a pinch of salt. And I like to roast cauliflower until it's perfectly crispy all over and then drizzle it on top or serve it on the side for, for dipping. Or if you want to go in the sweet direction, you can just do a quick Google search for tahini chocolate chip Ooh. cookies. There's lots of different recipes, and um, it's a n- nice variation on a traditional chocolate chip Ooh, cookie. That's... And then you can feel like you're even like healthier because you're like, oh, I'm having the good fats with my you know, cookie, right. and milk, <laughs> cookie and tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, per- that's perfect. So moving ahead or moving onward from your article, the next section which I have to say caught me off guard, was marijuana. So tell me about this, and how did it wind up on your food trend list? <laughs> well, I generally have an eye towards marijuana because I'm very pro-legalization, but it is very, uh, truly gaining some visibility. Maybe not marijuana specifically, but CBD, which is uh, basically a derivative which doesn't get you high but can provide some calming effects from marijuana. You can Google it also and find out the more specifics. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but CBD products are becoming more widely available and people are looking for those sort of like health benefits that CBD oil can provide. And you can find a lot of different food products that have it in it. Specifically why it's relevant for Jewish food trends is that we've seen marijuana sort of creep into the Jewish food landscape especially in the last year there was an Israeli company that did a marijuana flavored ice cream Joan Nathan was featured on a show this past year making marijuana infused matzo balls I cannot believe it yes Oh, yeah, yeah. You can find it on YouTube (laughs) I I mean this was not her you know it's a show called Vice so (laughs) there's well as there are more and more states that legalize marijuana and CBD products I think you'll see more and more of this and, you know, what the rest of the world is doing, of course, Jews are doing yeah, as well. Yeah, of course. Getting in on the act, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so the next category was foul meat. And uh, so talk to me about the fake meat stuff. Yes. So fake meat is having a moment, uh, but I, I hope it's not a moment. I hope it's a moment that will last, unlike the gluten-free movement. I think people are starting to recognize the benefits of, you know, uh, less meat and more plant-based protein and just more of a health-focused diet. Of course, it's better for our bodies and better for the environment as a whole if we eat less meat. So it's particularly relevant for Jews who keep kosher because there have been so many more products that are available that um, like the Impossible Burger. So, you know, for the first time, someone who's always kept kosher can have somewhat of an experience to have a cheeseburger. The Impossible Burger, for those who may not know, is sort of a new product that launched in about the last two years, I want to say, and has been appearing on more and more kosher restaurant menus that has sort of the same um, or a more comparable mouthfeel and textural experience as a real burger. But of course, it's, it's not made from meat. So you can have it with cheese and have sort of that cheese cheeseburger experience even even if you keep kosher all kinds of um, fake meat jerkies and fake meat you know 
bacon products, bacon-like products. So for for those who want to try and have the experience of bacon, there's so many more uh, products on the market these days. Uh, it's a trend I'm I'm very happy to see. I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm I'm pro pro less meat. And for those people who hadn't heard about the Impossible Burger until you just mentioned it. I believe, and you probably know the answer to this too, it's only available right now in restaurants. You can't go to the freezer section of your grocery store and buy that. I, I believe it's... I believe that that's true. I think there are some other brands that are similar, particularly at Whole Foods. I know I've seen them, but they're not the same as, as the Impossible Burger. And, and what they say about the Impossible Burger is like when you cut into it, it kind of like it almost like bleeds a little bit as that experience the way that a burger and I've would. Seen, and I've, would I haven't had it. it, but somebody I was at a table with did, and it did look just like a burger and did just what you said. So it's pretty crazy, but they, they figured it out. Yeah. And you also mentioned in that same section, you mentioned something about jackfruit. And have you ever had it? Oh, yeah. So Yeah, I almost forgot. Jackfruit is so interesting. I have had it. I've made it. And it's it's kind of gives you an experience like a pulled brisket or pulled pork, depending on how you make it. Vegetarians are really into it, and it's very easy to make. It kind it's kind of like tofu, and that kind of just picks up the flavor of whatever you would cook in it. You can buy it fresh, but I wouldn't recommend it because it's quite a lot of work to take out of sort of like these pods. Mm. Um, it's very large. But you can find it at Trader Joe's, my favorite supermarket in the whole world, in like cans. In cans. In these green cans. Huh. In cans. Is it like packed in water, in its own something? Yeah, I think it's packed in water. It's been a little while since I've made it. But Trader Joe's is also carrying like its own line of like pre-cooked jackfruit things. You can make jackfruit chili. You know, you can make jackfruit sandwiches. There's um, there's a lot that you can do with it in the same way that you could do with like a soy product. And it again, it's like that mouthfeel concept where it's like you want to have the experience of eating, you know, like some sort of hearty, meaty sandwich. But it's actually, you know, a fruit. Huh. And does it do you know if it has much protein at all? I don't I don't know yeah, that offhand. Okay. I don't. It's just a curious kind of thing. I'm going to have to try it myself. I had never heard of it until about two years ago when um, one of our video editors told me that I had to try it and go make something with it. And I was very skeptical. But now I recommend it to people. And a lot of my friends who are strictly vegetarian really love it. Uh, And I've heard other people talk about it, too. I just haven't gotten around to it. So, no, I have no excuse. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Okay, great. Report back. And so the last the last um, section in that article had to do with pierogies and other comfort foods, which always sounds really great, particularly during the winter. I just think about comfort foods a lot. So tell me a little bit about what you found out in that section. Sure. So I think that, you know, we're my this article was written not just on like what I'm seeing anecdotally and my experiences and I do love pierogies, but so it was based also on trends that were being reported via Facebook, Whole Foods and some other big, you know, food-focused companies. Facebook puts out a report talking about their trends every year, and they have a section on food. So I think there's a general resurgence or interest in global comfort foods. And Russian comfort foods or and Polish comfort foods like haven't really found a market in the U.S. yet, but they're starting to creep in, and I've seen it in a couple of ways. One is that a, um, a Russian chain 
called Terramok opened for the first time at two locations in the U.S. this past year. I actually went and tried it. I also just saw at Trader Joe's, um, I should get a commission for Trader Joe's because I just talk about them so much and I love <laughs> them. Um, they're, um, they have their own pelmeni for the first time, which are kind of like a Russian kreplach. They're just basically dumplings, but they're very traditional in Russian cuisine. You can find them at many Russian restaurants. And so they're carrying them now. And there were a couple of other dinner series that came up this year that were Polish-focused. So, oh, and then there's the Pierogi Boys based in Brooklyn, which I visited with my daughter just uh, under a year ago, um, which is just pierogies and borscht. So, you know, I kind of joke, but I think it's true. Also, when you start to see these trends in L.A. or New York, I think they're creeping up. So between Taramoke opening, a pierogi stand opening in Brooklyn and these other sort of things creeping up, I uh, I, I think pierogies are on the rise. I'm very excited. Who doesn't want more dumplings dolloped with sour cream on right. top? Right? You can't pass those up. <laughs> And and for people who are no. located in smaller locations or more rural areas, maybe they'll be available via online to be able to order, for one thing, and maybe they'll be in the not-as-great-as-fresh in the frozen food section, some of more often in your frozen food section. Of these. Absolutely. So clearly you did a lot of homework to put this article together, and I'm wondering, when you started researching it, were there any trends or any things that like you were really surprised about? Surprised about? No, no. I wouldn't say anything that I, I was surprised about. I would say one thing that we I didn't talk about in the article, but I think is also exciting, is um, a resurgence also in bagels. And not like your run-of-the-mill like bagel chain. I think there is like a real interest in hand-rolled bagels. And we're seeing that. L.A. is sort of having a bagel boom right now. There's been a couple places. Um, Chicago has one. North Dakota has one. You know, Portland, Maine has one where there's really an interest in making really great bagels the right Mm -hmm. way, right? Which means that they're hand-rolled, not by a machine, and that they're boiled and then baked, not just baked. So I think that's very exciting. And I think it stems from this desire for a more authentic New York-style bagel outside of New York. As editor of The Nosher, basically I hear all the time how people just wish they could either find better bagels or find better deli closer to them. Uh, And we're seeing that there is an interest in bringing those traditions to a wider expanse in in the United States. And that's a good thing. I mean, more more bagels is better for everyone, absolutely. (laughs) Which goes to your good bread thing that we started at the top end of talking about this. So... It's um, it's kind of that cycl- yes. cyclical kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think we covered the food trends coming up, which is really great. I think it's a great way to start out the year for people to be thinking about everybody starts out January thinking about how to be healthier. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> I don't know how long it lasts. I think about how to eat more <laughs> carbs for the year. Yes. So I think you gave people some suggestions and some new ideas of, Ways to still be healthy, but maybe be a little creative about how you think about your food. So that's all good. Yes, Mission accomplished. Exactly. So I thought maybe we'd pivot a little bit and talk about your cookbook, The Modern Jewish Baker. And um, maybe tell me a little bit about the project, like how that came about. Did it come out through 
um, your food blog? Was it a separate kind of project idea? And was it torturous? Was it a fun project? Tell me all about that. It was both torturous and fun. It was a very hard project to work on because I was pregnant when I was writing the book proposal. And then I had a very small baby, my second daughter, when I was writing the book. So it was a labor of love in so many ways. And I look at it and I'm proud of it. And I also just see all of its imperfections. But every time someone messages me on Instagram or sends me photos of things that they've made, I feel so very, very happy that we put so much work into it. The long and short is that I didn't go into this thinking I would write a cookbook. It was very far from my mind. And because I, you know, I'm lucky to run a website when I've wanted or and been able to work on a recipe, I have the platform to do so. So I always felt like I didn't want to self-publish a book, um, and I would only do it if it was with a mm-hmm. publisher. And I'm not usually a person who has a lot of connections, but I had a friend who had met with this book agent, and the book agent heard about the kinds of fun and crazy challahs I had been doing for many years and said, well, wow, that's that's a book, <laughs> and connected us. And that's basically how it was born. So I had just moved out of our apartment and moved in with my in-laws for six weeks while we waited to move into a house. I was pregnant. I was working. I could barely walk up the stairs, but I wrote this book proposal. I handed it in on December 24th. I gave birth on February 3rd, and then I think March 1st, we were pitching it to publishers. And by about May 14th of that year, which was 2016, we were signing a contract with my publisher, and um, and then I got to work. Wow. Yeah. So it was um, crazy. So just very, you know, like a, just give me a sense. Yeah, you want of, an what's, overview? of what's in the cookbook. <laughs> like if somebody was interested in, yes. in going online to find it, which I'm going to have you give that information shortly, what kinds of things would they find in this cookbook, which, by the way, has a beautiful cover? I love the cover of this. Thank you. So I, I was lucky I got to work with my sister-in-law on actually the format and uh, the look and the Whoa. feel of the book. So she's incredibly talented. That's one of the reasons why it's so beautiful is because of my sister-in-law, Becca Goldberg. So what I wanted to do, you know, like, again, having the mindset of an editor and being immersed in a digital media landscape, I, I wanted to really have the book have value. When we met with the publisher, they said, we don't want to just do challah you know, let's expand it. So the the book is not just about challah. It's actually about seven different kinds of dough, kind of mastering those doughs and then being able to have fun with it, riff on mm-hmm. it, if you will. So it's challah, babka, bagels, hamantashen, rugula, pita, and matzah. So each one of them has sort of like a master dough and then different ways that you can flavor it, shape it, have fun with it, do different things with it. So I really want people to have the experience of feeling confident in whichever dough that is and to, you know, feel empowered to experiment with it. For me, there's no one right or wrong way to be Jewish, and I feel that way about cooking and baking in the same way. So, and I also wanted to impart a really strong visual component to it. I know for myself, I'm a, I'm a home baker and cook. I'm not trained in any formal sense other than some recreational classes here and there. But I know how powerful a visual tutorial can be. You know, watching videos online of how to make something can suddenly give you the feeling like, oh, I can, mm-hmm. I can do that. So 
my sister-in-law and I very early talked about the visuals that we wanted in terms of process. So each dough at the beginning of the chapter has a process for making it and shaping it in different ways and what the dough should feel like. Because I think baking, while it is so scientific, also there's outside factors like weather and humidity and temperature. So once you know what your dough should feel like, you can always alter the moisture or the flour ratio depending on what's happening. So if your dough feels too firm or your dough feels too loose that you know that you should add or subtract based on that. And it sounds, I mean, for people who are new to baking or maybe don't have as much confidence in bread making and working with dough in that in that way, it sounds like you've really been able to find a way to put people at ease and feel okay about experiment, which is great. This is really for a home baker. This is not for somebody who has, you know, years of experience as mm-hmm. a, a pastry chef or something. You know, this is not getting into hydration ratios. This is just for somebody who wants to make challah for their family or who's always wanted to learn how to make babka and has felt intimidated to do so, just like I did before I started really working with it. So that's exactly what this is about. And the most validating thing is to hear People share, I'd never baked challah before. I didn't think I could ever make babka and are doing it. That's really lovely. I think that's great. And maybe you could tell people how they can find that book, uh, this cookbook, if they would like to. That's so nice. Sure. Send my kids to (laughs) camp this summer. (laughs) The book, you can find it anywhere. It's on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes & Noble. Maybe you could even find it at your local bookstore. It's called Modern Jewish Baker subtitle challah babka bagels and more yay please go buy it perfect so i want to close just by asking you a little bit about this podcast so it's, it's sort of a little off the track from our talking about jewish food but maybe not i listened to the pilot episode of your new podcast and funny enough there was some talk about food and Jewish food, kosher food. And in a way, it's not so much of a surprise because you might be talking about families, but you're also talking about food because food plays a huge role in family life. And the part that I'm remembering was there was this conversation about the importance of keeping kosher by the mom. And I think it was the co-host maybe, or maybe it was the guest. And the fact that Now the children are older, say teenagers, and they might be having some questions about the kind of food that they want to eat. And maybe that doesn't exactly agree with what we do in the house. And so it's complicated. And I wondered if you see food as some kind of connecting thing in working on this podcast, or if it's really just more about being a mom and doing the mom thing, which is a big project in its own. So tell us a little bit about the <laughs> podcast and also where they can how they can listen to that. Sure, sure. So I would just I would say more generally speaking that I think food is so powerful as a tool in your family for connectivity. I spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my girls and they both they fight over who gets to help mommy. For now cuz they're little. In 10 years, no no one's going to help me, so I'll relish it (laughs) while it lasts. But I think food is an amazing tool for parents to do things, you know, hands-on with their kids that isn't, you know, watching TV or being connected to a screen. The podcast is called Call Your Mother. Call Your Mother. 
you know, if you're from New York like me. And you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. So on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, et cetera. And it will be officially launching at the beginning of February 2019 if you're listening to that afterwards. So hopefully you're listening to it and it's already launched and you can start listening. Our first episode, you listened to our our pilot with Dahlia Lithwick who's amazing. Our first episode is actually with Chef Anat Admoni, who is an amazing powerhouse Israeli chef, female chef, and very funny, cool, very real parent. And she has a lot of really interesting things to say about the food world and her life and what it's like to be, you know, a powerful chef and also a parent and that sort of balance. The podcast is really, you know, about the sort of intersection or crashing into between being a modern Jewish parent and working and everything kind of in between. It's interview style and in our first season we got the opportunity to speak with nine different um, amazing female parents of varying backgrounds including Judy Golds who's a comedian and I've watched and adored my whole life. Um, several writers, uh, Naomi Fry from many different periodicals but just a really cool group of differing parents so oh, it um, sounds, yeah it sounds great do you know are you releasing one a month are you releasing all nine at the same time do you have any idea we'll be releasing one a week Perfect. starting in february that's great and i i have to I, if i don't shout out to my co-host jordana horn she lives only one town away from me so she will come over and throw oh, sharp things at me so i i <laughs> Yes, they would. She has six kids, so she really knows what she's talking about, and it's it's wonderful. So co-hosted with Jordan Wonderful, Horn. wonderful. So I'm going to close by asking you one last question, which is here we've been talking all about Jewish food and Jewish food world and podcasting and all of that. Do you have a favorite recipe that we might be able to share with the listeners of The Big Schmear? Well, we could talk about hamantaschen because Perm's oh. just around the corner. And I love my oh, hamantaschen recipe. Oh, that would be fantastic. It's very special because, so I grew up with, you know, those kind of like crumbly store-bought mm-hmm. hamantaschen, right? Everybody kind of grows up with. I didn't have ones my grandmother made from scratch. And I, so I never liked them until I met my friend Rachel Corrigan in Washington, D.C. And Rachel's mom, Susan, was a convert. And when it came time for her to make hamantaschen, she felt like I did. She didn't like them. They were crumbly and dry. So she went to her Betty Crocker cookbook and took inspiration from a cookie recipe there and turned it into hamantaschen. And Rachel told me, you have to try my mom's hamantaschen. You will love them. And so my hamantaschen is really based on Susan's recipe. And I think our, they're buttery. They're delicious. And um, I have a couple of tricks for keeping them closed, which I know is it always is. a problem. <laughs> It's so very special to me because as a child of an interfaith marriage, you know, people have differing (laughs) attitudes, but I truly believe that we create delicious things from diverse backgrounds. And I love that this recipe came from somebody who opted in to being part of the Jewish community and family. Can't say anything better than that. And what a great way to to end our conversation. Um, So we will have a copy of that recipe on my website so that you'll be able to try your hand at not crumbly hamantaschen for this coming Purim. Correct. So Shannon, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me about food trends and just what you've been up to with 
Jewish food, it's it's always great to hear about people's passion about Jewish food, and you've been a joy to talk with. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Big Schmear. Our recording in New York took place at Digital Island Studios. Our engineer and editor in Chicago was Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please send your email to beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating in 2019.